Welcome to Under the Skin. This week I'm talking to Marianne Williamson, the personal development pioneer, the spiritual, well, are we going to call her a spiritual leader? She's certainly a very influential and powerful person. We talk about activism, we talk about the new potential for a fusion of activism and politics, spirituality and politics, the empowerment of women, embracing God and the spiritual. It's a fantastic conversation that took place at the Wellspring Wellbeing Festival that's put on by Wanderlust. Thank you to them for providing the facilities and environment. Do enjoy Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Marianne Williamson, thank you for joining me, Russell Brand, on Under the Skin. We're uh, having this conversation at a wellness festival, the Wellspring event. What, what obligation do you feel when you're addressing an audience, particularly in the field of personal development? First of all, thank you for having me. Oh, all right, yeah, thanks. To be here. I have always felt in my career a profound sense of responsibility because when you are talking about spiritual issues, you're talking about someone's psyche. And people are holding a space for the possibility that you're saying something that will deeply affect the way they look at the world and how they behave in the world. That, so that has always seemed to me uh, very serious. Today, probably even more so because of the state of the world and our need to rise to the occasion um, of saving our democracy and saving our planet in time. When did you begin, to, when did you begin your journey in this uh, area of personal and spiritual development? How did it happen? I was always very interested in spiritual topics, starting even when I was like a teenager and my mother used to always joke about how when I was a little girl, how my prayers went on for so long. So I always had this um, interest in anything philosophical or religious or spiritual. And then I was very much a child of the 60s and the 70s where we would, you know, we would read Ram Dass and the I Ching and do spiritual things in the morning and go to anti-war protests in the afternoon. So it was very much part of my generational outlook of that time that there was this spiritual philosophical revolution and this cultural sexual political revolution. It was all going on at the same time. It was all of one. That's very curious because obviously now there's a sort of a bifurcation of those two ideas that activism is regarded as a kind of a sec secular pursuit with the assumption that what we're dealing with is a material and political conversation and spirituality increasingly has become regarded as either extreme or irrelevant. Do you, how do you feel that, uh, that we can change people's perception of spirituality so that it's neither of those things? Well, I don't... I have never felt, nor do I, that it's my job to change anybody's perception of anything. No? Uh, no, I think with spirituality, just like when talking about recovery, I think it's attraction, not promotion. So I don't think of myself as here to change anyone. Um, I'm just here to uh, sing the song that I feel in my heart. But to me, I can talk about spiritually, not as an effort to change anyone else, but to me, spirituality that bifurcation you're talking about is unspiritual. Gandhi said anyone who doesn't think religion has anything to do with politics doesn't understand religion. Mm -hmm. There, No serious religious or spiritual path gives anyone a pass on addressing the suffering of other sentient beings. So this sort of perverse and artificial notion of spirituality that has grown up in the last few decades, very much as you and I were talking about earlier, this ethos of only in modern capitalist America could you possibly dream up a spirituality which actually gives itself a pass and uses this notion of spirituality as a justification for political disengagement. The good news is that people are, I think, waking up um, to um, the 
what the Course in Miracles would call wrong-mindedness of this. Wow. I'm going to ask you about that wrong-mindedness in a minute. I've even written it down on my notes here. It makes me wonder, Marianne, how insidious and all-encompassing this uh, ideology within which we unconsciously live is for us to uh, unthinkingly accept ideas such as the apolitical nature of spirituality. It makes me think it's everywhere and everything that that we're kind of breathing an invisible gas that we're bewildered by an invisible ideology. Well, I think if we're old enough, we remember a time when this sociopathic economic perspective did not yet dominate everything. And if you were born after a certain period of time, you don't remember a time when that would have been considered insane. So now you don't even realize it. You, people are brought up to th- just so inundated by this monstrosity born of Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand, this, this, this trickle-down economic perspective that says market forces matter, market forces rule. It really, which amounts to, doesn't matter who has to die, doesn't matter what happens to be done to the planet, and we're all in lockstep with it. And now, uh, and that's why I think those of us who are older and remember a time when, no, I I, I take seriously my role as keeper of the story. There was a time when it was understood that capitalism too had to have an ethic had to have ethics. Cor- uh, uh, corporations should have ethics. Our economy should have ethics. That money should not be the bottom line. That love should be the bottom line. And if it's not the spiritual communities taking that stance. You know, we should be the biggest grown-ups in the room. We should not be these infantilized uh, people who are standing over on the, on the, um, uh, on the sidelines acting like, well, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't talk about that. What? That means they've got you. That's, that's not liberation. That's the essence of having been co-opted by that very sociopathic system. That's very interesting. Because actually thinking for a moment of sort of uh, some of the civil rights icons of the previous century, like, it, like you've already mentioned, Gandhi, where the sort of fusion of spirituality and politics is total and entirely accepted. And Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in this country. To... And abolition emerged from uh, the Quakers. Really? So all the great social justice movements, certainly in this country, and as you were talking about Gandhi, emerge from the spiritual and religious impulse. I wonder how the spiritual can be reintroduced into the political. Is this something? Well, I think you, think you and I alone are doing what we can. <laughs> yeah, I'm really trying my best. <laughs> and doing very well, I must say. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll take that. Someone's arrived here with a blanket and coffee, almost like the Gandhi note's been taken a little too seriously. A a blanket's arrived from the sideline. Um, Ah, lovely. Thank you. Marianne, I'm really excited to meet you. Uh, As you know, I'm a person that uh, is in uh, abstinence-based recovery. I I believe in the sort of 12-step principles. Uh, Can you tell me, uh, please, a little about Course of Miracles and how the ideas in the Course of Miracles fuse with 12-step recovery? Because a lot of people I've noticed whose uh, recovery I admire bang into your Course of Miracles stuff. I think there is one truth with a capital T, and it's spoken in many different ways, um, many different religious and spiritual traditions. And one of the things that's exciting about studying comparative religion and spirituality is that you see how all these different paths dovetail. You're at an AA meeting, you're at a Course in Miracles group, you're at a Kabbalah lecture, you're Tibetan Buddhism, and it's all like, yeah, right. It's all the same, all the same. There's just this one truth. And as you and I were talking about earlier, I think particularly when it comes to the 11th step, through prayer, through meditation, and through practice, I think one of the, you know, the Course in Miracles is not a religion, just like AA is not a religion. Um, there's no dogma or there's, and there's no doctrine, but there are principles. And these principles, in the, just like in AA, these principles in, in the Course in Miracles are talked about as tools in your problem-solving repertoire. At a certain point, you know the principles, you've read the course, you've read the big book, you've uh, done the steps, then the issue is, to the best of our ability, on any given day, practicing what we already know. I think that at, at conferences like this one, unlike 
what was true when my career began. Most people now, we've all read the same books. We've all listened to the same tapes. The era of data collection is over. We get what the principles are now. The principles in themselves are simple. Life, though, is complicated. He says in The Course in Miracles, my way is not different, but it is, excuse me, I'm sorry, my way is not difficult, but it is different. So that's the, the zeitgeist of this moment, it is not coming to hear from you or from me or from anyone who's speaking here things we don't already know. Now we're all joining together in order to access more deeply the things we do know and a deeper discussion of how the things we know apply to everything and also the changes inside ourselves that are necessary in order to bring about the external changes that are necessary in order to turn the ship of humanity's fate around in time. So you're saying that the knowledge already exists within us, but we need to learn how to activate it. I think sometimes that for a long time in my own life, I was unable to transcend certain behaviors. I found the idea of living without uh, pleasure or living without distraction very frightening. And I think in a way, to be, not to contradict you, but to challenge a little, I feel like I didn't personally have the knowledge. I, I wasn't aware of the possibility of living a life that was outside of the false ideals of a materialistic society. I thought that the only opportunity for success was personal success. I thought the only possibility of happiness was kind of a, the approval of others, adulation of others. And as through fortune, circumstance and chance, I experienced a degree of approval and success and the uh, emptiness remained unaddressed I, I only then through crisis and personal cataclysm began to consider the idea that the other paths might be available and to be honest I didn't have I didn't feel like I had access to the kind of mentorship that I needed I don't know if that's because I'm particularly myopic or stupid although I would consider both possibilities like where 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 are those mentors? Where are those methods? You know, if you think of like the, some of the religions that we've touched on, they seem obfuscated by obvious conflict in this time. It seems difficult, I think, to access some of the very simple principles that you've already talked about. Well, I totally agree with you, but the point is then you did find the 12 steps. I mean, to me, that's what the 12 steps represent. That's what the Course in Miracles represent. Every, everyone has a temperamental... Um, propensity for one particular path or another. And sometimes that has to do with where your particular areas of, of, of uh, challenge are. But the point is that you did find 12 steps, that I did find A Course in Miracles. And by the way, when you said you used to, I don't see myself as someone who now I get it all the time. I mean, I've faced those challenges to my ability to practice what I preach. Uh, almost every day. Honestly, because I think course. of you as a proper a... out there personal development guru person. No, but no, but And you're using thinks... this podcast to announce that you're a wreck. No, I'm not a wreck. No, no, I'm not. I didn't say that I was a wreck. Um, and I think that it's really important that as much as we admit the gap that still exists us between us and the enlightened self, most of us would do well to give ourselves credit uh, for the for how much we have achieved. So, particularly as a woman, no, I'm not gonna say, I'm just a wreck, enough with American women pretending we're porcelain dolls. We're not porcelain dolls and we are not weak and we are not wrecks, and that's important. However, yes, I'm on the path, I think of myself in Course in Miracles terms as a good intermediate student. What, where do you experience fallibility? Pardon? Where do you experience fallibility? Uh, Men, love. Oh, really? The men, yeah. the codependency? I don't know. I lied, lied, lied recently, and it just shocked me that I didn't, I don't think of myself as a, I don't think of that as being an issue for me, but in a particular situation, I lied, and he knew I was lying, and he knows I lied, and at one point he said, you're lying. I wish I just said, duh. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it's been a real um, a crisis for me that I, that I could have fallen into such panic. That's fascinating. At this point, yeah. Because, you know, like, obviously you and I, we're um, speaking to each other at the con in the context of a sort of a well-being festival. And I'm, you know, I'm very aware of my own fallibility. Sometimes that extends to the point, 
and it's interesting that you kind of saw or at least reframed my previous comments about being particular to sex because I, perhaps this is a white male, is just evidence of my privilege, reject those categorizations because I feel that my own femininity is oppressed by any toxic masculinity that is present. I feel that my own fallibility and and I feel that I'm personally oppressed by any system that doesn't honor all of the energies that make up human beings. But but perhaps more to this point, I feel when I'm licensed to talk to people about personal development or helping people, I think, oh my God, what am I going to tell people? I'm a nutcase, you know, I'm capable of having a breakdown on an airplane, lashing out in traffic. I mean, for me, it's a tightrope that I walk. I think that when you are a public person, uh, as you are and as I am, our willingness to appreciate, to not only appreciate, but demonstrate um, not only what those nuances are, but our willingness to try to get it right in a public space is important. And I don't want to pander, but I think you do a beautiful job, actually. That's nice of you to say so, Marianne. Thank you very much. I'm very, very, um, I'm flattered, and I'll probably isolate that clip and (laughs) play it as a mantra, possibly try to edit it as if that was the sum total of the interview. (laughs) Just uh, continually repeated. Now, one of the, like a couple of years ago, I um, got more involved in British politics. I sort of what happened was I thought, what will happen if I just say what I think is true continually on the internet? What will happen? And what will happen is I can now conclude is I'll have a mental breakdown, <laughs> uh, and I'll be a- attacked to a point that's difficult for me to bear. You, I notice, are very politically vocal. How do you propose to remain in the conversation about politics at a time when media is used so brutally to attack and undermine individuals that oppose the dominant narratives? I think about what some women in... That question just fell out of my (coughs) face. (laughs) Quite eloquently, I must say. Um, I think about what women in many parts of the world go through who can't even leave the house without a male relative, who can't leave the house without completely covered, even if that's not their choice, who can't make decisions about their own lives without being punished sometimes severely, even to the point of stoning. And I think, what the hell are you afraid of, Marianne? They're going to throw tomatoes at you or say mean things about you in People magazine. Who are you if that will stop you? Who are you if being embarrassed or being humiliated will stop you? I think every woman in a, in a free society, and that's only about 20% of the peoples of the world, hmm. we should think of ourselves as speaking not only for ourselves, but for every woman out there who cannot speak for herself. That's... <clears throat> a good idea but also it gainsays and contradicts the kind of presumed idea of our time that our journeys are very individualistic now i'm a visitor in the united states of america in spite of my current green card status but i will say that this perhaps is the I can't think of a culture where individualism is more worship, where the idea that you make your own luck, that you make your own fortune, the rags to riches, <coughs> the idea of personal success is so embedded. And doesn't that sort of oh, the, the, the deep DNA stitching of that ideology to a very deep, a great degree prevent us of thinking in terms of collective identity, prevent us thinking, well, you know, what's happening to people in the Yemen is our responsibility yeah. or the history of African-American people or former colonized nations is our responsibility. You know, because don't we just think, well, basically, I want to sort myself out. Yeah. I mean, we're at a festival in a sense that's about individual wellness right. rather than why don't we all club together right. and sort out some shit in Saudi Arabia. Well, any time in life with any strength, you have to watch out for the shadow, watch out for the flip side. So in America, one of our strengths, one of our characterological strengths is what you just referred to. It's rugged individualism. Anybody can make it. You can do whatever you want. But that has become unbalanced, and it has been used to legitimize a selfishness. I mean, even in our crowd, we we take old-fashioned selfishness, and we call it self-care now. 
I mean, there was such a thing as self-care, but some of the things justified as self-care, and we used to call it selfishness. And we have legitimized over the last 50 years in America, we have taken this idea of, of rugged individualism, and we have made it too much uh, legitimization of rugged narcissism. But I think many people in America realize this. Uh, this is when I said before Milton Friedman hooked up with Ayn Rand. Yeah, that has, it, it's a perverted sense when it's really all for me and to hell with what it you know what happens to other people that is the disease the belief that it's all about you you know in the human body every cell is assigned uh, to other cells to collaborate with those cells in order to serve the healthy functioning of the whole when a cell goes off on its own disconnects from that collaborative matrix doesn't remember, no, this is about working with other cells to serve the healthy functioning of the whole, goes off to do its own thing, that's called cancer. That's malignant in the body, and it's malignant in, in consciousness, and that's what's happened from a spiritual, metaphysical perspective, that's what's happened to the human race. We have been infected with a malignant consciousness. It's all about me. And that's so what the United States is dealing with now is, and I do think, you know, a, a country is not a particle, it's a wave. So let's talk in terms of what we are realizing. And I think many people are realizing where this mentality has gotten us, particularly to the extent to which it infuses our economics, to the extent to which money has such an undue influence on our, on our government that it's in service as handmaiden to that economic system, which is basically sociopathic. Because a sociopath has no empathy. A sociopath has no remorse. A sociopath just wants what they want. And so you have this sociopathic ethos this is now that has infused our economics. It's deep in the bones of how we're operating. And that's why it needs to be named, it needs to be called forth, and it needs to be changed. When, um, that's interesting what you say there about the shadow. I'm very interested in understanding politics from a psychoanalytical perspective. It's a sort of a, a new wave of analysis that relies heavily on Jungian uh, psychoanalysis to understand, sort of, for example, gender or sexual politics, depending on which term is more appropriate. And my feeling is that all culture, all civilization passes through the consciousness of human individuals and is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny or is it phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny well i don't know because like phylogeny <coughs> is that's that's the genesis the genetic the behavior of groups is it but it's it's the same it's mirrored in groups yeah yeah, yeah right like uh -huh. so like so uh, ultimately these energies or these trends or traits must exist at the level of an individual mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about, uh, you know, American politics, and it does seem particularly, um, you know, I'm, I'm in England, and there's all sorts going on there as well, but like, uh, there's a kind of a vividness, a luridness to American politics at present. But my question is, that are these uh, events not necessarily anomalous, but merely exaggerations, merely greater revelations of conditions that have always been present? Yeah, in, to put bluntly, whilst Donald, Donald Trump might seem especially terrifying, is he merely not merely an amplification of conditions and ideologies <coughs> that have long existed? Well, two things. First of all, if you have two major political parties, both of whom set the idea of the businessman up to be God, then it shouldn't surprise anyone from a metaphysical perspective that the worst kind of devilish perversion of that image would appear on the scene. Wow. That was created by that. But secondly, we had reached a point in our society where we thought we had a consensus. It's not like anyone thought racism, bigotry, anti-Semitism, homophobia, misogyny, xenophobia didn't exist in America. But we thought we had reached a consensus that there were lines past which we would not go. We thought we had reached a consensus that no major political institution, any political party, etc., would give a serious political megaphone to those forces. One party thought, well, we'll bring them in just because they'll vote for us and then we'll moderate them once they get in, mm -hmm. which didn't work. 
And also with social media, and then you have someone like a, um, a President Trump who's willing to harness all that for political purposes, and you have the kind of crisis that we have now. But once again, and I think that those of us in the spiritual community have a lot to look at in ourselves, because none of this came out of nowhere, none of this could have happened had we not taken democracy for granted, had we not thought somebody else, you know, I'm not political, somebody else will handle that. That's what we've learned about this. We've learned how naive we were. You can never take democracy for granted. It's just like health, and that's why this is a perfect place to be discussing this. You have to take care of your nutrition. You have to take care of your exercise. You have to take care of your spiritual path, your lifestyle, all kinds of things. You can't not cultivate health. Just wait till sickness almost inevitably arises and seek through allopathic means alone to just eradicate or suppress the symptoms. That model of allopathic medicine has now given way to an integrative approach. We need to do that with society. You can't not cultivate justice, not cultivate mercy, not cultivate democracy, not cultivate compassion, not look at mass incarceration because it's not in your neighborhood, not look at wealth inequality because it's not in your neighborhood, not look at what's happening to the food supply because you can drink green juice. You can't, you can't do that and then be all shocked when this explosion of dysfunction and anti-democratic assault happens. Now, it's the 11th hour. We can, we can handle this. I think we're going to move through this. But we have to change. And that includes taking responsibility as citizens for our part in it getting to this point. We have to change. Martin Luther King said there have to be, uh, we need quantitative, uh, external quantitative changes in our circumstances and qualitative changes in our souls. We all have to be the immune cells now. And I think this awakening is happening. I'm not saying this from a place of thinking, it's not happening, because I think actually it is happening. I think that the Trump phenomenon and the crisis in our democracy right now has caused a lot of awakening. But this awakening must be permanentized. Because if we don't, first of all, if we don't have this awakening, we won't defeat these forces even uh, temporarily. If we are temporary with our awakening, then even if we, let's say, defeat the president, that hydra has many heads. We have to remain awake. Citizenship has to become a part of our sense of what it is to be a conscious human being on a whole new level for the sake of your children and the sake of mine. I really like that rant. And. <clears throat> um. <clears throat> It seems, though, Marianne, that the sort of most immediate response to Donald Trump is a kind of, in the what he would refer to as the mainstream media, a kind of nostalgia to return to what immediately preceded it, a kind of fating of previous the previous president, um, without an acknowledgement that the conditions that immediately preceded this time led to this time and then what's needed is the kind of radical solutions the kind of radical change in perspective that you've just uh, illustrated i my fear is people are not learning the relevant lessons of this time people are keen to return to the sort of just five years ago when things were a bit nicer first of all you can't look in somebody else's heart and know what relevant lessons they have learned so there are a few but you can look in their newspapers and read what they're writing and okay. i am and what they're saying is, yeah, oh, Barack Obama saying. was nice. Well, I think this. I think that a lot of mainstream media in the United States knows that it has blood on its hands. Mm. Knows that they treated this man like he was a joke. Les Moonves said, uh, bad for America, but it's good for CBS. Um, they, didn't, they, they treated it like it was a clown. At the beginning of the election season, uh, Bernie Sanders had as many people at his rallies as did Donald Trump, but they kept showing Donald Trump all day every day because it made ratings go up. They, they helped create a Frankenstein and then couldn't, couldn't uncreate it. And I, what I see is a lot of people in media actually trying to make up. I think there's actually some very good writing going on right now. Yeah, I do. And also we have the fact that, if, like everything else, it all became a corporate matrix that, that, that dominated uh, most, uh, most of our media outlets, as we know, so that we got to a point several years ago where the same kind of article 
that would have gotten a Pulitzer Prize 15 years ago got the reporter fired now because the, cap, the corporate chieftain who owned the newspaper actually owned the factory that the article was writing about how it was polluting the environment. So it, it all has become this putrid uh, toxicity underlying everything, the fact that there has been this corporate takeover, not only of our political system and our economic system, but even the American mind. Mm-hmm. That's, and also that's an indication of what we sort of touched upon before, that we're living invisibly in extremist times. That extremism is not necessarily observable because you don't look around thinking something's extreme if it's all you've ever known. You think of it as normal. Uh, can you tell me what you were like, please, when you was a little kid? Because uh, I want to know how you came to have this uh, sort of spiritual perspective. Can you tell me about early experiences of God or whatever <coughs> it is you want to call it? Can I go back just a little bit? To you do what you like. I mean, I'm not really you. a pushy guy. Um, I say this to you particularly because you're British. Um, a lot of what we just talked about implies correctly that Americans slept for way too long. Uh, I, Churchill himself said you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they have exhausted every other option. Hmm. So our historical narrative, and Europeans are very aware of this, is such that we are often slow to get there. But we slam it like nobody's business once we do. May I say, I worry about things like that because in a sense, like, isn't that in a way adhering to the idea that there is such a thing as an America, an American ideology? And if you have a sort of a national identity, even in a quite a pleasant way such as that, that ultimately at one end of it, there is, it leads to a kind of a sort of a, either a supremacism or an elitism when in effect the United Kingdom, America, all these things are merely economic confections with some sort of, sort of, you know, sort of root in history. But perhaps these are the very kind of ideas that we need to overthrow to, to genuinely look at this as a global community, genuinely democratize the world, genuinely give people authority and power, and look at who does America serve? Who benefits from America? Who benefits from the UK? Who's benefited from the last century from industrialization to the technological revolution other than these elites that continue to be in power regardless of what sort of noise comes out of the president's face? Nothing that I just said in any way implied better. A rose is not a peony. They're both flowers. Um, America has a lot to atone for, but we shouldn't have to apologize for every little thing either. I just don't so think when there I, is an America. I, I don't I think America needs to apologize. Yeah, I just but, think it's made up. Yeah, but, well, uh, but I think there are things that are British. I think there are things that are Italian. I think there are uh, aspects of this woman's personality that is different from mine, different, uh, your personality different than mine. And I do think that countries have characterological... Um, have characterological tendencies. Like I was just in Ireland. You think of all the Irish writers. When I'm in Italy, it's like, what are these people? It's like they see color we don't see. I mean, it's just, I think every person, there are talents and there are, I don't think any nation is better than any other nation because I don't believe that any people are special than any other people. But I do think that you can talk about the history of a person and you can talk about the history of a nation. And that's all I was just talking about. I was talking about what has happened so far and um, a kind of a characterological tendency that is simply fact. It doesn't make us better or worse. I think that we clearly have demonstrated both. Yes, I wonder what kind of radical ideas will have to enter the mainstream in order for us to, to, to transcend the kind of bipartisan or this, dualistic okay. politics that we currently the, toil under. But this is what's interesting to me. You said what has to enter the mainstream. I think we get too concerned with the majority. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's free the slaves. The majority didn't wake up one day and say, let's give women the right to vote. It, society changes because a small group of people, usually considered outrageous radicals by the status quo of their time, have a better idea. It's just like an evolution of a species. If, if, the, if the collective behavioral patterns are maladaptive for the survival of the species, then it will either go extinct or it will change. So there's the introduction of the mutation, and then the mutation is never 
the the majority, but it's the only survivable option. So what's happening in the world is that our collective behavioral patterns are maladaptive for survival of our species. And all the great avatars and spiritual wisdoms, they are the mutation. They show another possibility. So we don't, I, I think sometimes we worry too much about the mainstream. The mainstream, the abolitionists were not the mainstream. The women suffragettes were not the mainstream. The civil rights was not the mainstream. Don't worry about the horizontal. Stay with the vertical. Say what you think. And conviction becomes a, for, a, uh, a force multiplier. And I think people such as yourself, I think I like to think any of us who do work in the public that are stating a certain something, it, you just land it down on the vertical. That's what hate does. Hate has conviction in the world today. Far more people love than hate, but hate hates with conviction. We need to demonstrate behind our love the same kind of conviction that is now being demonstrated by hate. And we need to be willing to say it. We need to be willing to point out the lovelessness in our economics, in our society, in our politics, as well as in our hearts, and not care how many people agree with us. That's the thing. That's just sales mentality. This is just like lay it down because it's the right thing to do. Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the days you stop talking about things that matter. And then it doesn't even matter. Uh, Lenin, when they said to Lenin with the Russian Revolution, you'll ne never be able to convince the masses. He said, I need 10 good men who understand what I'm talking about. And this community alone, man, we get this. We can help tip things in a really big way. Yes. <clears throat> I agree with you, uh, uh, but also, uh, Marianne, I feel that um, you know that I feel that there is a kind of uh, I think it is fair to say that there is a kind of lethargy, and my my personal principles lead me to feel that. Um, yeah, I guess I have a sort of a sense that I, I have a good, tremendous faith in human nature. I believe that what will be revealed as better information comes to the forefront, as knowledge becomes wisdom, is that people will recognize that their own lives are not their best lives. I suppose I spent quite a, I grew up in a pretty ordinary community, uh, a place called Essex, and for American shorthand, that's New Jersey. Like say, you, know, you think, oh, what's Essex? I don't know what it means. It means New Jersey. I'm from New Jersey, <laughs> but an the English British version variety, of it. Yeah. Everyone's absolutely bloody delightful, to tell you the truth. And like you said, you know, people are, you know, that love is more prevalent in most people's lives than hate. And when hate becomes more prevalent in my own life, I could not be relieved of it more quickly. I crave freedom from it. I want the light. I want the light. Um, when I talk of the mainstream, I, in a sense, I'm talking about a portal, portal through which the information can be conveyed as opposed to sort of a, you know, a, a, a majority sway of opinion. I know that most democracies are governed by a pretty small army and a pretty powerful media and some private prisons. It's not like, you know, it's not 90% of the people out marching the streets managing minorities. It's like passiveness. But, you know, when, if I feel, when I feel like, how are we going to bring about radical change? How are we going to, for example, just off the top of my head, and I'm taking a risk saying this out loud, really, how are we going to make people think that uh, God or love or whatever words you want to use is more important than the things that tether us to material things through fear? How are we going to midwife that kind of psychic change without challenging th ideas that have been around for a long time, like the preeminence and importance of economics, like the idea of identifying with the nation state? State, like the idea of even being governed by your own fear. So when I talk about bringing these ideas into the mainstream, it's not like I sort of imagine a tiki torch wielding horde marching through the streets singing the name of Christ and Muhammad in unison, although how would that work as a harmony? I, I'm thinking instead, how do we bring, how do we popularize these ideas? How do we articulate them? Even if it's not, you know, even like I don't want Sesame Street replaced or the X Factor to replace, be replaced with some sort of esoteric spiritual bloody uh, ideologue I'm saying how do we make these things clear how do we make these things accessible what new ideas are we willing to embrace you know and I and, and, and is it time to start talking about 
God, do you, do we need America? Do we need England? What do we need to survive? I think we are doing it right now. I think you're doing it. I'm doing it. We're doing it. I think everybody in their own way is doing it. I think it's happening. You said, how do we do that without challenging? No, we can't do it without challenging. The point, I think, that this is where the spiritual community is, is you can't you know, you you can't go right to the resurrection and ignore the crucifixion. Oh. That's not that's, that's not terribly upsetting the crucifixion. That bit where he gets speared. What? <laughs> I'm saying like it's a shame that you have to go through the crucifixion, isn't it? Poor Jesus up there. Uh, no, I don't think it's just about Jesus. <laughs> it's about the darkness I know what crucifixion means. It's so a the point is, that's, we need to get out of denial and go into transcendence. Transcendence is not where you deny all those awful things that you just listed about economics, nation states, and so forth. The point is, we have to name it. And I think it is happening. Um, when you say, how do we do it? You're being led to do it. I'm being led to do it. And I'm assuming everybody in the audience in their own way is being led to do it. The fact that people w wanted to listen to this podcast, they know you're doing it and they know I'm doing it. So that by definition means that you're part of that conversation with Sean Corn. She's doing it. So every, who, who here isn't doing it? It's happening. And I think that um, uh, the more we hold with a loving, uh, in a loving context that we have to look just like in A, you have to look in, in, in Catholicism, you have confession. In Judaism, you have the day of Yom Kippur. In AA, you have to take a bro brutally honest look at your own character defects. You can't heal with looking at our character defects. And the socio-political and economic issues that you refer to are, the, are our collective uh, character defects. And the issue is to create a safe place for the conversation where we do look at them so that the changes can be made. Hey, Marianne, tell us about when you was like a little girl. When I was a little girl. Because <laughs> well, remember, ages ago I said, will you do it? You said you would. Then we had to go on a big, long conversation. It got very political and very spiritual. And now I want to know when you was a kid, how you thought about God or love or how you even term those things or if you're afraid of talking about, I mean, I don't suppose you are. But no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. My mother, I, I already said my mother is, it's kind of family lore that I... Took a long time saying my prayers, sitting up, and she'd come back. I was still talking. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do, kind of. What were you and saying? I, I well, I had I had it all figured out. I had I said the <laughs> Lord's prayer. I said the Shema, the Jewish Shema. How's that go? Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Amen. Um, we might take a moment to think about the synagogue that was. Um, experience a mass shooting today in, in Pittsburgh and the policeman also who died. Um, you know, whether it's shootings in schools or churches or synagogues or anywhere else, these ancient viral uh, barbarisms continue to uh, appear among us. So when I was a child, the thing I remember most, not most, but something I remember is that my parents had a friend who was going to have open heart surgery, and I had it all planned that the night before I was gonna pray for him. And I forgot, I fell asleep, and he died the next day. And I was in horror. I thought it was because I forgot to pray for him. Don't blame yourself still, do you? Pardon, what? You don't still blame yourself? No, I don't really think that my forgetting to pray for him, no, I, I don't. But I was a child, you know, you have a little child's mind. That, and that wedded you to the significance of prayer. Yeah, I always had that. Well I, well, I was raised in a conservative Jewish home, so it was very traditional in that sense. And then when I was in, I remember I took my first philosophy class when I was 14. I went off to a summer school, and I remember looking at the at Phillips, Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, and I remember the, the, the pamphlet said, Philosophical Approaches to the Question of God. I was like, oh, I just... <laughs> was in, and then I was very into astrology and the I Ching. I've always been equally attracted to East and West, esoteric, exoteric. You can talk to me about St. Augustine, or you can talk to me about the Taoists and Lao Tzu, or you can talk to me about the I Ching or Chinese astrology, as you know. We, um, it's all exciting to me. Yeah, what is that? What do you think that impulse was when you were a kid? What do you think that was? You Why know, you it's you just kind that? of like we were talking before about nations. Everybody has their temperamental, you know, some people can paint, some people can draw. Some people and I just don't have that talent. You know, we all have our, our, our dharma where th that, I'm, I'm about that. Mm. I'm not about that. Other people are about that. So you've just felt a sort of a yearning for the unknowable and you yeah, found it attractive. Always, yeah. 
I always, I've, I've always, yes, I've always been a mystic, yeah. Who were your first good hookups? You know, like people that you thought, oh, I can go to this my person. My grandfather, because I used to go to temple with my grandfather on Saturday. He's a Jewish man, he's taking your oh, synagogue. Yeah. And when the ark would open and you genuflect, he would cry. And so I used to look at him and I, and so did I cry because he was crying? Or did I cry because, I don't know, I've always wondered, did, why do I, why does it make me cry? Was it because Pops cried? I don't know. I think that you and I were talking before about how we mentor our children and our grandchildren. and I've always just had that thing. So your grandpa, your Pops, he was an early mentor for you in his sincerity of Nothing feeling. Nothing he said it's in that sense. I mean, he was a lovely, lovely man. But I just remember when you asked that I would go to, when I was at synagogue with him, and I remember how he would cry when the ark opened, and so I would cry. So I just sometimes ask myself, would you have cried? Anyway, you get mine. Well, probably not, because I imagine that it's a kind of a resonance that he was in tune with a kind of a wordless, sentimental, beautiful connection to whatever that meant to him, and you could feel that, the resonance of that, that you could feel it. You know, it. my grandparents, and I think this is such a, such a big topic for us now, so many of us, including in the spiritual community, have lived history and politics from the neck up. Mm. So think about what this means. The Holocaust was over in 1945. I was born in 1952. So if I was, you know, if I was a temple with my grandfather when I was just a little girl, the Holocaust hadn't been over that long. So the story of the immigrant, the story of people who survived, it's the emotion and the depth of that that needs to be passed on. That's what's sick about America today is that we don't realize that we're so easily vulnerable to this horrifying propaganda about caravans. What, what do you think these people coming up from Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador are, except what our ancestors were? Unless you're a descendant of slaves who obviously were forcibly brought here from Africa, or Native Americans who... Um, we're here for thousands of years before we got here, then that means your ancestors came over here with that same level of despair, that same level of, of sacrifice to get here to hope for a better life. And so I think it's so important that every generation passes on not only the stories of our history of the human race, but also particular tribes and groups, or else... Or, or else we, we, become, we become automatons. We're not living the whole person reality. You know, I see Sean over there, and I was looking at your Instagram and about people. I was just in Mississippi and South Carolina, and people who are going to the plantations, we're in the midst of a huge re-education process. You know, after the Holocaust, part of the reconciliation with Jews on the part of Germany was continuous Holocaust education. We haven't had that here, and so, which we need, you know, people, American kids grow up reading maybe a paragraph about slavery and the civil rights movement, so now we are taking our, our education and we're taking it down to the level of, to a cellular level of experience and emotion and psychology and understanding. That's an example of what I meant when I said I think it is happening. The issue is, will it happen enough, it happening fast enough? And we'll know more about that on the morning of November 7th. Oh, because there'll be midterm elections. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, we will, won't we? Um, okay, so uh, more inquiries of this nature. How did your uh, spiritual education continue from these early experiences and curiosities, the uh, visceral and emotional experiences with your grandfather? What, how do you feel that like your spiritual perspective was formed? Well, my my sense of, of values definitely came, and a sense of God and connection to values came from my family. But my religious education, I found with institutional Judaism, what you find a lot with institutional Christianity, I learned some religious things, but I didn't learn the spiritual meat of my own religion. I'm not saying my religion doesn't have spiritual meat, but it's not what I learned. So for me, I kept, I, I, I picked up any book. The Seth books were very significant to me. Um, Life and Teachings of the Masters of the Far East, Ram Dass, all the things that every, Alan Watts, all the stuff that everybody was reading at that time. But 
It was when I picked up the Course in Miracles, which doesn't claim to be for everybody, but if it's for you, you know it. What I got from the Course in Miracles, and I was in my mid-20s at the time, I'm not saying that this had not been in other things that I read, but for whatever reason, I didn't get it from other things I'd read. And that's that there is no coming to God except through the person in front of you. That that is, you know, the Course in Miracles says, belief in God is, doesn't mean anything. It's the experience of God. And the experience of God is our love for each other. I love how in the Course it says some people conspire with God who do not yet believe in him. It's like you and I were talking before about atheism and so forth. Uh. So I learned that loving other people, everything is secondary. And my capacity to reach across the wall that separates me from others through my own judgment, through my own attack thoughts, uh, through my own failure to take responsibility, self-righteousness or whatever, that work on myself is the spiritual work. Oh, to prepare yourself so that you are able to feel God or love or whatever word's convenient in your relationships with other people. This is... That this is, is the experience of God. Whoa, tell us more. Well, the Course in Miracles says there is no getting to heaven. Um, it says heaven is entered two by two. You cannot get there unless you take someone with you. And heaven is not a condition or a place, but an awareness of our oneness. So the Course is not trying to get us to believe in God. It's trying to get us to believe in each other. If you're in front of me, you're my spiritual lesson, and you're my path to God. The Course says everyone you meet will either be your crucifier or your savior, depending on what you choose to be to them. Uh, On my own, like just literally on my own moment to moment, I feel like a lot of my life was somehow this ossification of loneliness, of dreadful solitude, pain of loneliness I revisit it somehow often when alone even briefly intermittently like uh you know I arrive here it's late I go to the room and I feel sort of headachey and post flighty and alone and I have to remember that when I talk to other people if I prepare myself in the manner in which you have described that I will feel God and love in other people even in just incidental communication like when I talk to a person oh excuse me do you know if there's any yoga here and the person really takes oh yeah let me try and find it I think oh yeah people are beautiful sometimes on my own I get pretty scared like that I feel like you know like oh I'm gonna be attacked or people won't be beautiful or the world won't take care of me have you over time been able to cultivate a sense of this uh, faith in God through relationships that will is sustainable even in periods of uh, solitude, suffering, pain, and endurance. Yes. H- how did that happen? And when I have been these times of pain, I wonder when was the time of wilderness for you or the, the <coughs> garden? Uh, my, I wrote a book called Tears to Triumph, which is exactly about that, about the application of spiritual principles to human despair. One of the issues that has been very, um, that I've been very passionate about is talking about the sociopathic economics and how um, even human pain will be turned into a profit center if there's money to be made for some corporation. Um, I'm very concerned about what I think of as the psychotherapeutic, psychopharmacological industrial complex, which has chosen uh, for the sake of a billion dollar industry to medicalize human despair. And the truth of the matter is um, depression, and I'm not talking about bipolar or, or schizophrenia, that's outside my lane, outside my purview. But the normal spectrum of human despair is my lane because the real spiritual path does not just take a yellow smiley face like this and put it over everything, go be happy, be happy. Buddha would not have begun his path of enlightenment un- until he, he crossed his father's walls and saw suffering for the first time. Moses was sent by God to the Israelites because they were suffering in, in Egypt as slaves, and Jesus suffered on the cross. So the real spiritual outlook recognizes the suffering of the human condition when we're living outside the context of our love for each other. So. That, you know, if you, if you had a heartbreak, a, a divorce, financial failure, bankruptcy, lost someone you loved, these things are painful, but they're not mental illnesses. Uh. And, what, uh, and that's why in that book I write, this is what Buddhism says, this is what the Old Testament says, this is what the New Testament says. AA or anything else, 
you, you, that's why you keep coming back because it's a rough day today. It's recognized it's a rough day today. <laughs> it's recognized it's a rough day today. And if you're left on your own, God knows what your mind might lead you to do. So when you know principles, whatever your path is, um, and you practice them. So you asked about myself. Um, okay, Marianne, um, and I've, I've lived two periods of time that by any, by any means today would be called clinical depression, but even that's such a scam. All that means is somebody in a clinic said it. There is no blood test, hmm. right? But if you've been there, you, you know it. Okay, Marianne, you, number one, you uh, don't even think this is going to be done quickly. So none of this, like just, you know, today people say, well, your mother died a month ago. Aren't you over it yet? No. Okay. It's going to take time. Number two, who are the safe people who can accompany you on this? Um, who aren't going to say, who, who aren't going to, you know, who, who are the people who will bear witness to your agony during this time? You probably want to get a lot of, um, uh, what are the, the movies and the, and the, the, the what are the things that you're going to need to support you? Make sure you have a lot of, of bubble bath. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure that you stay with your meditation, even though you don't want to stay with your prayer work. Uh, make sure you show up for other people. You will be, you will have a tendency to isolate during this period of time. You must not do that. You must get up and work. Your subconscious will put aside your despair while you're showing up for other people. And then when you come back from that, you'll go back to crying again. There is an art to navigating despair. Mm. There is an art to navigating depression and the spiritual, spiritual principles lead us there. There are seasons of life. I quote in that book from Rilke where he says, let me not squander the hour of my pain. That's even like right now, everybody doesn't want to be depressed. Excuse me, given what's happening in this country today and given what's happening in this world, if you're not depressed, who are you? We, these are very sobering times. These are very sobering times. Somebody sent bombs to all the major, to all the major critics of the president yesterday. They shot up a synagogue today. Well, look at what's happening, and that's just, just in America this week. So when you, when you recognize the depth of, of the serious problems confronting us, sober people are sober. You know, these are sobering times. Not everything is rah-rah. That's why I, even in, in our community, too often, uh, there's this infantilization. Uh, too many women acting like girls. Too many men acting like boys, at least in America. It's a crisis of adulthood. And I think now um, a, a deep recognition of our own suffering, and you don't want to desensitize yourself to your own suffering. If I desensitize myself to my own suffering, I'm more likely to be insensitive to the suffering of others. I remember when we, when we, when we um, invaded Iraq, and all these women, these, this is rain of fire on their homes and their children that they couldn't protect and their, their husbands they couldn't protect, their sons they couldn't protect, their, the, they, they'd done nothing to us. They'd had nothing to do with 9-11, and even if they had weapons of mass destruction. We do business with people who do have weapons of mass destruction every day. And I would say to people, this is terrible. This is terrible. And they would give me the most facile answers. So we have to bear witness to our own agony and, and be with people who bear witness to others because we have a, an agonized world we have to address. Mm. I like these... Uh the way that these personal coordinates for coping with despair, knowing that when you're in that terrain of agony, to have some disciplines or principles that will be applied when you're in that terrain. Absolutely. I wonder, do you think, Marianne, that there is a, a limit that's being exceeded to how applicable these principles are, I mean in terms of scale, that... In a way, we're being sort of tested anthropologically. Like, how can, like, if, the, if we were the only people in the world now, this couple of hundred people in this room, that perhaps we'd be able to organize ourselves, support the flaws, fallibility and vulnerability in each other to recognize that none of us are perfect, that, uh, that sharing and democracy would be the best way for us to govern this small society. As that scales up to hundreds of millions of people, 
and naturally an, an ascendant elite establishes systems that are beneficial to them regardless of the consequence as you spoke of earlier with the sociopathic objectives of domination regardless of the consequences how do you even think it's possible to apply these principles on a social level or do you think the obstacles that are presented by the truly powerful are as things stand at the moment insurmountable meaning that we have to bring about revolutionary change in order to live principled lives president kennedy said those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable there is a revolution going on there does need to be a revolution but it is a peaceful revolution and i think it's happening i think it's happening inside people. I think that the wellness community is a large part of that. I'm assuming that's true of every person who is here. And I know for a fact that we are all being led to each other. Um, some of the people, uh, I'm experiencing this in this room, some of the people are in this room, we're also coming together for more public, more collective things. Don't count us out. Uh, I, I, it's the 11th hour, but it's not midnight yet. I also remind you, even here in the United States, Gore won. And I remind you that Hillary Clinton got three million more votes. We are being, at this point, we are being tyrannized by a minority. And it's important for us to remember that. So this extreme right wing um, um, force field in, a, in America today, and, and I realize it's happening, it's a global threat. But I believe in every country in the world um, that the yearning of the human heart to be free of this is evident everywhere, and it's inside and it's outside. And yes, I believe it's happening. It's like that, that line, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The Course in Miracles says, God's will has never not been done. We are going to overthrow the tyranny of a sociopathic economic ordering principle. The, it's going to happen because it is too out of alignment with nature. The only issue is how much suffering is going to happen first. And the cho that choice is up to you and me. And as long as people like yourself, Russell, the very fact that you're, you know, you are at a place in your life, you, you could use your fame only for frivolous, silly things, but you're choosing not to. And there are millions of people doing the same. We're, let's, let's, let's not forget to give credit where credit's due. We're in the middle of this. We're doing it. And I think we're going to pull this off. Marianne Williamson, everyone. <clears throat> we will bring this podcast to a conclusion as the women and men in the room stand to applaud you, Marianne Williamson. Thank you very much for that educational hour. You're a wonderful woman. Thank you.